You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. You again this week, church. We are diving back into the book of Romans and uh, continuing our journey through chapter 8. We're halfway through today uh, in an in a eight-week series in the book of Romans, chapter 8. And so... Um, one of the things I just love about chapter 8 of Romans, one of the things, the kind of images that comes to mind is just that um, it gives us, from the perspective of chapter 8, it gives us this, this grand, sweeping, vista-like view over all of God's plan for the redemption of his creation from beginning to end. Just these sweeping views. You guys know that we, uh, as a family, we love hiking. We specifically love going out west and, um, and Werribee Gorge is one of the places we love to go. There's a pic there of uh, the kiddos. Um, a little cl- too close to the edge for Renee's comfort and not close enough for mine. All right, so that's the, that's the middle ground um, <laughs> where we make it work. And uh, the thing about Werribee Gorge, the thing that's so cool about it is that once you get up out of the, out of the gorge itself, you, you walk up onto a ridge line that goes forever. And you, you can walk along this ridge line at, and at points you get these lookouts that give you this, this vantage point over the whole of the valley below. And uh, that's one of those vantage points uh, um, which kind of brings to mind chapter 8 of Romans. In my mind, it's like that ridge line out at Werribee Gorge. And as you walk along and through chapter 8 of Romans, you get these vista views. You get these lookouts uh, where you get to see from God's vantage point all of human history, all of salvation history from beginning to end. And this particular passage we have this morning from 18 to 23 gives us probably, I think, the best possible view of what God is doing in creation from beginning to end. You, you get to see from Genesis through to Revelation. You get to see from creation to new creation and just the, the beautiful unfolding of God's salvation plan even in the midst of this present darkness. It's a beautiful view. Tom Wright says this in his commentary on Romans 8 of this passage. He says, from this point... We can see in astonishing clarity the whole plan of salvation for all of God's creation. Once you've glimpsed this view, you will never forget it. And yet, most readers of Romans for many years and in many traditions have hurried on by. We're in a rush to get on to, you know, God works all things for the good of those who love him. Or onto that golden chain of salvation that we're going to finish the chapter looking at. The, the fact that we are more than conquerors in Christ. right? Um, that he who did not spare his own son, how will he not with him give us all things? Those beautiful, magnificent views that are yet to come. But we hurry on by this one in, in our rush to get there. And we're not going to do that this morning. We're just going to sit and we're just going to appreciate the view from Romans 8, 18 to 23. And Paul begins this, this uh, the, the kind of explanation of the imagery in the, in the valley of present pain and suffering. So that's where we'll start as well. Verse 18 says, For I consider that the 
sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. I really appreciate Paul's approach to suffering, which in fact is just an echo of the Bible's view of suffering in general. I I appreciate it because he doesn't try and suppress the reality of our pain. Unlike other religions and worldviews, it's not about repressing those feelings of pain, trying to escape those experiences of suffering, pretending like they're not there, hoping for the best. The Bible actually gives us a really beautifully realistic picture of the pain and the suffering that every one of us is bound to experience in this life. So let me just do a quick survey of the New Testament for you, beginning with Jesus. This is what he says in John 16. I have told you these things so that you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I've conquered the world. That's the balance in the biblical view of suffering. It's realistic. You will have suffering. And it's optimistic. Be courageous. I've overcome. I've conquered. And obviously, Jesus... Disciples pick up on this theme and in 1 Peter 4, he says, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you, as if something unusual were happening to you. Don't have this expectation that being a Christian will mean like walking between the raindrops. There is no promise to claim for a painless present. In Philippians, Paul says, Philippians chapter 1, For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. And in 2 Corinthians 4, in a kind of echo of what we've just read in Romans, Paul says, Our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. It's so interesting. You might remember when we went through 2 Corinthians, we noted this, that it's interesting that he calls it momentary light affliction. Because in that same book, he talks about the fact that they, the apostles were so overwhelmed with pain and suffering and persecution that they despaired of life itself. They were experiencing the most, I mean, the deepest kind of depression. They thought they were, they were going to die not just as a result of physical threat, but just through being overwhelmed. And yet, he says, this momentary light affliction. Why? Because he's comparing it with the weight of glory that's yet to come. And so, again, verse 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. So the Bible is realistic about our prospects in this life of avoiding suffering. That is, it tells us we won't. And then he takes this reality, he takes this very realistic view of the suffering that we all experience and he puts it in context. He puts it in the context of God's salvation plan for our redemption and restoration. 
He puts it in that context so that we can see it in context. And he puts it in the context of God's plan of salvation, not only for us, but for all creation. So get this, verse 19 through to 21. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. Whoa, there's a lot there. That's, That's a big, big vision and a lot for us to absorb, particularly if you're like most of us and you haven't been given this full orbed vision of salvation for all of God's creatures. If you've pigeonholed that to be some kind of pie in the sky, like cloud, harp, cream cheese existence, right? Then this will blow your mind. And so I just want to take, I want to, I want to kind of break it down a little bit here. So let's begin at verse 19. Read that again. He says, For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons. Remember that from last week. That's God's adopted children. For God's sons to be revealed creation itself everything you're standing on now creation itself knows that it's not what it should be it knows it understands creation itself understands that things aren't as they should be Creation itself has this kind of holy discontent that you can relate to. If you're a Christian this morning and you've been a Christian for more than five minutes, you will know this holy discontent. I am not what I ought to be. I am not all that I should be and could be. This is not self-hatred, self-recrimination, right? This is not, I'm just a worm and God must hate me. This is just, I am not all that God intends for me to be in this age and in the age to come. I am a work in progress. I am not yet sanctified. I I have not yet arrived at my destination. This sense of holy discontent, the creation has that too. The world that we live on and in has this sense. Like the world is thinking to itself, I am not all that I should be. The world is like, it's like, it's like a little kid. You just imagine this now. You have to use, use your imagination to get Romans 8. Use your imagination. The, the world, creation itself, not just us as people, not just the earth that we live on, but the universes. They are like a little kid looking forward to the next big event. Right now, my boy Judah is reminding us every 15 minutes that it's his birthday on Tuesday and has been doing for weeks. All right, we were having, Renee and I were having this kind of DNM with him the other day and we were kind of really 
you know, um, needing him to understand something, reassure him of something. And after spending time with him, just in the quiet and chatting, you know, instructing him on some stuff, we were like, so do you understand what's going on in this, Judah? And he was like, yeah, it is five days till my birthday, you know that? It's just he's constantly thinking about it. He's not going to be content until the day comes. And the creation is like that. Creation itself is constantly counting down the days. It's, it's on tippy toes looking for the second coming of the Lord Jesus. It is desperate, eagerly waiting for that day to come. Verse 19, the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed, for the redemption of all things. Now, how did it get this way? How did we find ourselves in this fix? How did we get to this holy discontent, the hope for something more and better? Why is it eagerly anticipating something yet to come? The answer is that it's all because of God's plan. It's all because of God's redemptive, restorative plan. Verse 20 to 21. For the creation was subjected to futility. Right? The creation was cursed. By who? Not Satan. Not by Satan. Satan has no hope for anything good. But this creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. This is, notwithstanding the fact that this is all wrapped up in God's plan of hope, this is the like un told tragedy of the fall the untold tragedy of that fall in Genesis 3 where God's good creation was shot through with futility was cursed in response to Adam and Eve's sin the untold tragedy is that the world itself is in bondage as a result we sinned Creation suffers. We sinned and creation suffers as a result every day. Suffering, decaying as a result of that sin. George Whitfield, one of the greatest preachers of all times, he says, he says it like this. He says, haven't you noticed that when you come near the animals, they growl at us, they bark at us, the birds screech at us and fly away. Do you know why? They know that we have a quarrel with their master. Creation is groaning and growling and screeching and straining for the curse to be undone. For God's sons to receive their inheritance, for the world to be remade, restored, redeemed. 
creation is not what it could be or should be. We mask it. Right, we, we do this all the time. We mask it with chemicals and cosmetics. But the world is dying. It's decaying. And now it's hoping and praying and groaning that it itself will be set free from the bondage to decay. We can mask it all we like with our chemicals, but this thing is dying. And so creation itself in this dying, decaying cycle, it's, it's in bondage. It's enslaved and it's desperate for liberation, for final restoration. For God's adopted sons, men and women, heirs, co-heirs with Christ, for them to receive their inheritance, part of which will be a restored, created, recreated earth. It's desperate for that, to be set free. The creation says, just like as, as Moses said to Pharaoh, the creation says, let my people go. Now, here's the fun bit. I want you to use your imagination to think, like, what will that look like? As sure as night follows day, that day is coming. It has been secured for eternity past. It's part of God's salvation plan that cannot be broken. Creation will be redeemed. It will be set free. What will it look like? What will this creation be like? when it's not in bondage, when the chains are broken. Imagine it. Use your imagination, and you have to to get this, because we have no frame of reference for it. Maybe the most beautiful view or sunrise or steak or wine or honeymoon night or I don't know like maybe the best experience of your life can sort of give you a little bit of a foreshadowing of what it will be like but you're going to need to use your imagination what will creation be like when it is set free what will creation be like minus the curse The prophet Isaiah uses his imagination and gives us a couple of little pictures. And this, is, this, is, this is the genre of kind of prophetic poetry. And so we, we shouldn't go and you know, paint pictures of this and say, this is what it's going to be like. He's just trying to give us a flavor. He's trying to give us a taste of what it'll be like. All right? And Isaiah 55, he says, You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the pine tree. And instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown. For an everlasting sign which will not be destroyed. And then he gives us another picture in, uh, in chapter 11. He says, the wolf will live with the lamb. 
The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. (laughs) I love that. What are your stories? Where does your imagination go? What's it going to look like? What's it going to feel like? What's it going to taste like to live forever on an earth that is no longer decaying? That is no longer groaning? That is no longer shot through with futility? Every echo of the curse will finally cease. Every echo that we experience in earthquake and fire and flood and pandemic and death itself, all of those will cease forever. The sound we'll hear instead is creation itself singing praises for the Lord's renown. What does that look like? Use your imagination. Teach your kids to dream about this. There's been a period in church history which needs to be repented of where we stifled children's imaginations. We told them that their pets wouldn't be in heaven. There can't be any dinosaurs there. And they're certainly not going to fly. Don't do that. Teach your kids to dream and then try and catch a bit of it yourself. You know, it's adults, cynical, world-weary adults who come up with nonsense about pie-in-the-sky heaven, about a disembodied ethereal existence up in the sky. Nonsense. Listen to your kids. What do they dream of? What's their vision for the new creation? You need, to, you need to have these conversations like every day when things are bad, show them that these bad things aren't worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. Reassure them that these bad things that are happening are only part of the shadow that will give way to the sun of righteousness. Educate them so that even in the best days, when that birthday finally comes, or when you're on your first holiday after lockdown, that these things are just foreshadowings. They're just tastes, little insights into what it's going to be like all the time, every day, forever. And then listen to their dreams and absorb some of it for yourself. It'll be the antidote to all of that crap. <laughs> that we've imbibed over the years through Dante and through like of this disembodied, this, this, this platonic, shadowy life after death. Teach your kids to dream. We need to know this. And I'm like, this is just what we've been praying for before church this morning. I really deeply want God's Spirit to do a work right now where we, from now and forever, 
that we know that our future is eternal life in a glorified creation. Is eternal life on this earth, this earth, this universe, minus the curse, minus sin, minus decay, minus futility. That is where we are heading. If you get this, this will change you. This will change you. This will change the way you see the world around you. This obviously has been on my mind all week because this is all I do all week is just chew and chew and ruminate on whatever we're working through on Sunday. And so I happened to be ruminating on this on Friday on my day off and as I spent the whole day in our veggie patch, um, just getting it ready for planting and we put in a, a new... Uh, in-ground kind of composter and just a lot of work, a lot of getting rid of thorns, which are just little illustrations of the curse and taking rocks and concrete out of the soil, and, right, just preparing it. And it was really, really enjoyable to be investing time and energy and sweat into God's good earth into God's good creation the knowledge that this earth will itself inherit eternal life that it won't be done away with and destroyed and thrown away like a bunch of rubbish but it itself will be redeemed and restored and everything good that came out of that Friday right everything good that came out of spending time cultivating, will be preserved. That will change the way you view the world. I doubt if you get this, I doubt whether you can throw your rubbish out of the car window. I don't think you can. Not without immediate conviction of the Spirit. Now, I love the fact that we've got a new ice cream shop in Caroline Springs. I hate the fact that there is half a million ice cream cups, little spoons, all over our little patch of earth here. I hate it. I hate it. It's an assault on God's good creation. This will change the way you see everything. That idea that Christians should just insulate themselves and, and, and buy lots of canned food and just hope and wait for when Jesus is going to come and take us somewhere else cannot survive, will not survive, should not survive if this, Paul's vision, Jesus' vision, the vision of the Bible is the real one. So, friends, let's take it back from the top. Our present sufferings, though very real, are not worth comparing to the glory of the new creation. But our knowledge that things aren't as they should be, 
and aren't as they will be, that knowledge actually in some ways adds to our pain. It adds to our suffering. The knowledge that if only Jesus would come back, we would be liberated. That knowledge in some ways adds to our frustration and it produces in us a groaning for that which is yet to come. So, last couple of verses, verse 22 to 23. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves, brothers and sisters, we ourselves adopted children. We ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. We eagerly wait, and that that eager expectation produces groaning. Please, set us free. Here we have no lasting city. We seek a city that is to come. We know it. And it makes us groan inwardly along with creation. The whole world, us included, is groaning in labor pains. That's the image Paul wants to leave us with this morning. Labor pains. That's the image he has of this present life that we're living, this present age between the first and second coming of Jesus. This Advent time. Where we're waiting for him to be revealed. We're waiting for him to make all things new. This is the time of labor. It's a very evocative image. Half of you know it very well. On Tuesday, it'll be eight years since Judah was born. And it means it's eight years since I saw Renee labor for 36 hours laboring to bring him forth, to deliver him. 36 hours of intense groaning. That's the kind of groaning Paul's talking about. It's not like, oh, I've got to get up and wash the dishes. Short-lived and relatively pointless. This is labor pain groaning. This is groaning until deliverance. This is groaning until until everything we've been hoping for and working towards and anticipating is brought forth. That's the image of suffering that Paul wants to give us. It's realistic, it's not suppressed, but it's put in context. It's doing something. It's achieving something. It's working for us an eternal weight of glory. It's progressing towards deliverance. It's going to produce something beautiful. So are you groaning? Are you groaning? 
Many of us have been groaning through lockdown. Right, Melbourne, the city with the longest lockdown of all time. Many of us have been groaning. But this kind of groaning will not be relieved by an easing of restrictions. Even if they gave us all the freedom in the world tomorrow, the groaning would continue. Because for us, the lockdown exists and will continue to prevail until Jesus comes and liberates us. We are locked down into futility. We are locked down into sin and decay and death. And so we groan and continue to groan. We're going to push and heave and groan until he comes. This is how you persevere in suffering. Wishful thinking won't do anything for you. Suppressing the truth and reality of the, of the suffering that we will experience in this life will not help you. Putting it into the context of eternity will help you. It will help you persevere. To know that this present suffering is not worth comparing to that which is going to be birthed. This is how you become a masterful Christian. The most masterful Christians are the ones who have suffered deeply and persevered to the end. This is how you do it. This is why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 4, we are afflicted in every way. Like, realistic. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Hopeful. Realistic and hopeful. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. Friends, we are struck down, but not destroyed. And never will be. Hang on. Keep groaning. Join with creation and, we're going to see next week, the Holy Spirit himself in groaning groaning for release. Futility is part of the plan. But it's not the end of the story. God's plan for the redemption and restoration of all things ends in triumph, ends in liberation, ends with a universe with the curse deleted. I'll leave you with this. It's a, a quote from Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, and he quotes uh, The Return of the King, the last in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And he writes, Just after the, cl- the climax of the trilogy, Lord of the Rings, Sam Gamgee discovers that his friend Gandalf was not dead, as he thought, but alive. He cries, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? 
the answer of Christianity to that question is yes. Everything sad is going to come untrue and it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. Let's pray. Father, we have a vision of the gospel that is too small, too small by far. We've narrowed it down and hemmed it in and it's been tainted with our cynicism and our very grown-up thinking. Please, Lord God, even now, please broaden our vision to take in the whole vista, the landscape of your salvation plan from creation to new creation. Lord, may we dream like children of the age that is yet to come. May we fantasize about being reunited with loved ones, with pets, the discovery of things that we didn't even knew existed and were part of your creation. The wonder of your brilliance. May we yearn for that day. May we groan for that day. And may we persevere in faith and hope and love as we wait for the revelation of the sons of God. Do it, Lord. Give us the vision. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.